Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. This podcast is your place for insights from music executives, industry leaders, and heavy hitters who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. And on this podcast, I had a great conversation with Chris Taylor, who is the president and CEO of Monarch, which is a record label that was formerly E1 Music. And Chris has been leading this record label since 2016. And we talked about what his journey has been like, not just as the head of this label, but throughout the music industry. Chris was in a band much earlier in his career. After that, he transitioned to a career as an attorney, and he represented a bunch of clients that are well-known in Canada, such as Avril Lavigne, Nelly Furtado, Drake, and many more. And he had also started an entertainment company, Last Gang, and he talked about that story and how that led him to selling that company to E1 Music, which now became Monarch. So we talked about some of the transitions there, what it's been like to sell his company throughout the pandemic, and just evaluating some of the M&A opportunity for that, and some of the trends more broadly in the music industry. We also talk about what it was like for him representing Drake and other Canadian artists. We also talk about one of the most popular assets that Monarch owns, which is the Death Row Records catalog. This catalog is celebrating its 30th anniversary in 2021, so we talk about some of the ways that the record label has celebrated and commemorated Death Row, such as releasing NFTs, virtual museums, and some of the bigger decisions that they had made last year. They had released The Chronic on all streaming platforms. So we talked about some of the steps that went in with that decision as well. Chris is a veteran in this industry, and we covered a whole bunch of topics. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It was a pleasure to talk to him. Here's my chat with Chris Taylor. Today's episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by AudioMac. Audio Mac is a music streaming service that is artist first. It is all about helping artists upload their music and share it with their community and get paid without any fees. And Audio Mac is launching a new program called Supporters. Supporters is an opportunity for artists to create a new revenue stream and build connections with fans and allow their listeners to directly contribute to the music that they love. You can learn more by downloading the Audio Mac app or visiting audiomac.com. All right, we got Chris Taylor here, president and CEO of Monarch. First off, Chris, congratulations. We're a few months into Monarch. How's it been? How have the first few months been? It's been busy as usual. Thanks for having me on. I'm a, I'm a regular listener and a fan. Appreciate that. It's been busy. Our deal closed in July. I mean, it was about a year-long process before that. We were up and presenting to numerous potential buyers over the years. So it's been a busy year. And now just getting acquainted with the new team, new people that we're working with, you know, that lots of time being put into that. We went through a name change in late September. So that was a, a branding exercise and changing email addresses and setting up a new website and all of that work. And in the meantime, in the business of the music company continues, right? We had, you know, I'd say even, even since July, we've had uh, number one records with Lumineers, Pop Evil, one of our rock groups, Jonathan McReynolds, who's on the uh, gospel inspirational side. We've had tours out on the road with uh, Pitbull and Ricky Martin. We've had four or five songwriters uh, nominated for Grammys on different projects they've worked on. And we've uh, released the My Little Pony soundtrack. 
over that period of time. So it's been busy. I could imagine. And I feel like you have a better glimpse into how the music market has been the past couple of years, more than anyone you had talked about before, just in terms of shopping it around and seeing how it was going. What was that process like? Were there any highlights or anything you could share about what the process was like of when you had E1 and then trying to find a buyer and then ultimately landing with Blackstone? I mean, just to anyone who's been through that, understand it's a, it's a time-consuming process, and uh, I don't think I'm sharing anything out of school, but for folks who haven't been through it before, really, you start with a preparation of a deck. What is the business all about? How has it performed historically? What are the highlights? Where are you taking it into the future? What's the vision for the future? You know, lots of work on financials, historical financials, as well as forecasting. How do you think the business is going to perform going forward as well? And that's, you know, I'd say that's a three to six month process to get that right and pull all that information together to present. Then you spend a period of time targeting people that you want to present that to. And then you go into the presentation, you know, where you're presenting to could be over a dozen different potential buyers at that stage and presenting the business to them, walking them through what for us was about an 80-page deck, ultimately. And then you arrive at a, a particular juncture where a group of people that have been reviewed the deck and seen the presentation and asked all the questions will make a proposal, you know, that kind of gets them into a second stage of the process. So you sort of whittle down the wide group of interested parties whittle that down to a handful, uh, and then you go into more intense due diligence after that, and then you whittle it down to one, and then you're into negotiations and finalizing uh, very, very, very long-form agreements with numerous attachments. This is a company with uh, a long history, right, like 20-plus uh, years of recording agreements and every agreement under the sun over that period of time. So there's lots of history there and a lot of things to do diligence and kind of look at before you're moving forward and sort of making the announcement, which we did in uh, April, I think it was April this year. Then you go into the closing period after that. So you sort of pick who you're going to get married to and then you do your sort of longer form agreement from there, which eventually closed on July 1st for us. Got it. And I imagine, too, shopping it around, making sure that you're getting what you expect to hear from the other side, from the potential buyers as well. I'm sure there's also a timing element as well, because there were a bunch of other big pieces that were happening broader in the music industry, whether it was Universal and them going public or some of the other deals that were happening as well. Was there also a bit of, let's see what number that this company may go for and how may that influence what we may think we get or the influence that we might have on the negotiation table? Was that a factor at all? Yeah, I think fortunately, I mean, the enthusiasm for the music business did not decrease over that period of time. And there were different companies that were out on the market. I mean, we've now found downtown was out there doing business. I think they sold a portion of their catalog to Concord. Uh, I think AWOL was uh, out there in the mix and did their deal with Orchard. So lots of, lots of activity uh, in the market that kind of informs pricing and valuation and things like that. So people on our sell side would be aware of 
how people were viewing things and how they were looking at various businesses. So it's uh, part of the process and informs what you're what you're doing and where you land. I think. Right. And for you, you'd been with the company since 2016. And even in that time, there had been a few changes, right? You were under Hasbro at one point, and then, of course, the most recent deal in the rebrand to Monarch as well. At the core, you are still leading and running a record label and more broadly an entertainment company. But how has the strategy shifted in that time span of the different eras of leading the record label? How is it different now? as opposed to what it may have been in earlier points? Sure. I mean, I can take you back to 2016. It was really an opportunity to move into a bigger company. I sold my law practice. At the time, I had an independent label called Last Gang, which I sold into E1 as well. But it was an opportunity to be part of a a larger, better resource opportunity that was globally scaled with real tentacles into film and TV production. E1 was... I would say the music part of that business was about 10% of the business, right? It was a a film and TV company along with its family and brands business, Peppa Pig, PJ Masks, and others. If you have kids or nieces and nephews, you'll know about those. So moving over was also an, uh, an opportunity for myself to sort of learn more about those businesses, film and TV in particular. So we were there for about a year. We purchased a company called Audio Network out of the UK, which is a uh, music library catalog business. And then shortly thereafter, there was discussions about the Hasbro purchase, which altered the strategy somewhat at that point, because I think our our strategy or my strategy, our strategy was to kind of go out and really do some M&A and look at really scaling the business after that audio network purchase. But Hasbro came along and made us an offer we couldn't refuse. So the business sold into Hasbro, which you know most of the listeners will know is the, the maker of some of your favorite games, and including Monopoly and owners of the Dungeons and Dragons franchise and just a, a massive $11, $12 billion global coin games business, which altered the strategy somewhat. And this is all kind of out there publicly. You know, I think on the announcement of our sale, Hasbro would admit, they said, look, we bought E1 because of Peppa Pig and PJ Mask. They own IP and incredible toy brands. We make toys, so that's a synergy. And we also, we want to make film and TV content that helps amplify our brand. So whether it's uh, Transformers or Dungeons and Dragons or Power Rangers or anything else, we want to be making that content in-house as opposed to using third parties. And music, they would tell you, what I mean, that wasn't core to their strategy. We've definitely had a music strategy that integrated with film and TV. We put out the first Peppa Pig album, uh, which continues to do incredible for people. Uh, I think I mentioned we just put out the My Little Pony soundtrack. So developed a music strategy in and around that. But it wasn't core to what Hasbro wanted to accomplished with the $4 billion purchase. And as we sort of moved into 2020 with COVID, Hasbro, you know, and again, this is all publicly available information. I'm not sharing anything that's sort of confidential. With COVID, the film and TV business couldn't really produce film and TV. It could develop uh, film and TV content, but their production shut down. And in that period, Hasbro, as you can imagine, 
would be getting phone calls about a music business that was increasing in value and an attractive asset for third parties. And I think that's really what fueled the decision to sell the music business. It allowed them to take the cash, pay down some debt, stick with their schedule of paying dividends and things like that, and allow us to kind of move to the next phase, which is where we're at now, with buyers and owners that are enthusiastic and focused on our business, which is a great change for us. I had a lot of great friends at Hasbro. I miss working with them and was looking forward to moving forward with them. But I think the opportunity we have now is actually better, just in terms of resources and focus and the, the kind of fun we can have. At the same time, we still have a continuing relationship with Hasbro. We're working, Hasbro and D1 work. We put up the My Little Pony soundtrack. We're working, you know, probably doing music supervision on 10 to 15 different film and TV projects. We're still very, very involved with them on that sort of music department side. So it's almost the best of both worlds moving forward. Appreciate that breakdown. And <laughs> that was a bit long winded. No, that was good. That was you good. I mean, the, if I'm going on for too long. <laughs> I mean, the MA nerd in me loves to hear those. And I think what stuck out specifically is obviously COVID just being a huge factor where it, in some turns, increases the value of the asset that part of the company that you were running and it decreased the value for a lot of the other assets and areas under the business. So, of course, they're getting the phone calls, which makes sense. I feel like you alluded to this, and I could also see maybe just a bit of a tension or challenge with maybe the concept versus the execution, because I think that the idea of having a record label and a asset that is doing as well as the record label is working directly and partnering with an entertainment company makes perfect sense in terms of the synergy opportunities, as you mentioned, having things in-house and whether it's toys and different partnerships. But when it actually comes to the functional aspect of having this in-house and some of the gears that need to be turned to operate in tandem, does that look better as a partnership or does that look better as a acquisition? And you may not have said this directly, but at least that was the take that I got that it seemed as if, of course, the companies makes perfect sense from a partnership perspective, but were there some synergy opportunities lost or not necessarily lost, but was the value not necessarily unlocked as it could have been just because how you in many ways, you being the most knowledgeable person, maybe likely in the organization of how to run a record label and some of the things there, how does that sync up under a company where their expertise or some of their main focus areas or main objectives may not necessarily be as aligned with where yours are? I was fortunate under at E1, so the founder there is a guy by the name of Darren Truth, and he was a really big reason why I went to E1. This is a guy that really built that business with his bare hands. He had a record store in Halifax, Nova Scotia, 25 years ago. Then he had two, then he had five, then he had 55, then he had 105, then he bought Koch. It really rolled up a, a music business, right? So this is a guy that was a, a hardcore music fan, but also a hardcore businessman who is a great partner for me. So he fully bought into the strategy. It was a 12-page business plan that we discussed for about three years before I went to E1. So I knew what I was getting into, and he was incredibly supportive of the vision. Unfortunately, you know, we knew, I knew going into E1, the only thing that would sort of get us off track 
on that vision would be if somebody else bought the company or if Darren wasn't there anymore. And unfortunately, in that regard, someone else did buy the company. And uh, they ultimately get to make the decision on what they're doing going forward. And understandably, there was just a different, there was just a different strategy. And it's nobody's fault. COVID kind of punched everybody in the gut and nobody knew when it was going to finish, when it was going to end. So I understand. I was sad about the decision at the time, but, you know, I understand where it came from. Right. I could imagine that. And I definitely see how you, of course, have the objective. But in a lot of ways, no one could have planned for what happened in 2020. And we've just seen so much change as a result of that. I mean, we can't, we don't really know what's going on today. You know, we keep, I keep hoping every quarter, I kind of like, okay, by January, we're not going to know what's going on. You know, we've got all these tours booked for next year, fingers crossed, all kinds of activity planned. But we have our first case of this new variant in California this morning. Where is that going? I'm optimistic. I mean, I think we're on the right path and things are getting better all the time. It's just obviously not back to where we were in early 2020. Definitely, definitely. And I feel like with all these changes too, as you alluded to, there's just been so much movement happening overall within the music industry. We talked a little bit earlier about Universal's deal and some of the others. So I guess independent of what happened and the moves that have happened most recently with E1 and Monarch, what's your take overall on the landscape for music and music companies and record labels and the companies that are interested in them and then the sales that have happened and the ones that likely will continue to happen? It's, uh, I mean, it's anybody's guess at this point. I'm so happy for my attorney friends who have weathered, I call it the Napster winter, it was the Napster winter from 2002 or 2001 to 2015, where if you survived through that and you were working in the music business, it was because you loved it on some sort of level. I'd include myself in that category. And we've all kind of survived it and kind of come out the other end and we're benefiting for it. Time will tell, you know, in terms of pricing and valuations. I remember in the early 2000s, BMG was up there buying catalogs at, oh my God, eight times multiple, 10 times multiple. These guys are crazy. This is never going to work. Now, I mean, we'd all love to buy a music publishing catalog at an eight times multiple. They look like geniuses 10 or 15 years down the road. The time will tell it's the new batch of buyers and the new batch of money uh, that's out there are making the right decisions. I'm optimistic. I'm an optimist by nature, but I do think there is real merit in that legendary Goldman Sachs report. Streaming is going to continue to grow. There's no, no more new music listeners or new music platforms and music users on the scene every day. I guess the question is, how fast does it grow? How long does it grow? And where is that growth going to be? But I think there's, there's an incredible amount of opportunity that's out there right now. And I think we're going to look back on this period of time and maybe wish we could get a catalog for 15 times multiple as opposed to 30 or wherever it's going to. I agree. I'm optimistic too. And some of these multiples that you mentioned, some of them are crazy, especially when you get down to the single song level and you do the math for how much was paid for what ultimately is to get these three songs out of this massive catalog. It's crazy, but the math is there for a reason. And yeah, I think there's plenty of question marks, right? The international growth piece of it, 
is a big factor. I think there's tremendous upside, but it's also relying on a model that is much more proven in the markets that it's already established in and how is that going to work in some of the other areas that we need growth. And also, there's this whole movement of emerging technology and newer platforms that are trying to fix or improve upon some of the challenges that a lot of artists or music creators feel that there are about the current landscape. But we'll see. I still think there's incredible momentum. And even if things will continue to change, there's clearly on a trajectory. But that said, the people that are selling them, especially the people that aren't necessarily in their legacy years, they're doing the math on their end. And some of them are feeling like this is the high market, which implies that the market may not necessarily be as high later on. So it's been interesting to hear a few different viewpoints on this. I mean, similarly, I'm I'm still optimistic on it as well. But it's going to be interesting to see how the next five, 10 years look for this for sure, because it is banking on several things that are unproven, but that's business, right? That's why these bets are happening in the first place. Banking, yeah. Bets that are unproven, banking somewhat on uh, interest rates, banking on a current state of the economy. I think another interesting question, and to uh, Joni Mitchell behind me here, is are people going to be listening to Joni Mitchell as much in 30 years? Are people going to be listening to Bob Dylan as much in 20 years as they are now? I know I will be, but the question on some of those sort of legacy copyrights and how you're valuing valuing those and and what the durability of those copyrights are going to be over time is going to be interesting to watch as well. Right, because there is a shelf life. As much as we may think of these as evergreen content, Bob Dylan will be less and less relevant for each generation as time continues to go on. And you assume that there may be some equilibrium or what do they call that in math like some asymptote that it's just kind like, of like a de- decay to a degree yeah right but where that is and what it looks like who knows but if you're basing it at least on what you expect it to be from the time being i do think that that is a smart bet if you're looking at it that way but if you truly think that this is evergreen in the true sense of never declining then that may just take a bit of a a, a reset because i don't think anything even some of the surest companies that we may have in the economy now, things just rarely don't look like that, right? Look how many times the companies in the Dow Jones change or something like that, right? Like these things always turn over. It's true. Yeah. I mean, there's people who would have maybe put similar bets on Bing Crosby back in the uh, 40s or 50s. And at some point, people are listening to other things. Let's talk more about today's sponsor, AudioMac. If you've been listening to the Trapital Podcast for a while, then you know I'm a big fan of what AudioMac has been building. I've had several of the executives on the podcast, and that's why I think what they're building with supporters is so cool. First off, this is a bridge between the artist and fans and making that as much of a straight, direct connection as possible. From the artist's perspective, it's an opportunity to unlock a new revenue stream on top of what they already get through streaming royalties, and it offers them an opportunity to segment their top fans and gain direct access to them. On the supporter side, it offers them the opportunity to become part of the music that they love. They can display their fandom by stamping their name on any release, and they also get exclusive access to perks and unique opportunities that the super fans do get. To learn more about supporters and what AudioMac is building, you can download AudioMac in the App Store or you can visit AudioMac.com. Definitely. 
One of the things that I like that you mentioned, you talked about, what did you call it? The Napster winter? I call it the Napster winter. That's my phrase. I haven't trademarked it or anything. You can feel free to use it. <laughs> <laughs> the Napster winter. Well, I lived that. I lived it. Yeah. You lived it. And to your credit, you talked about the people that really loved it when they were in it. You, in many ways, made your career during the Napster winter and you started your legal practice. You then rose through the ranks as an attorney in the um, industry. And you had a lot of great accomplishments under your belt. I mean, whether it's Drake or Nelly Furtado or some of the other acts that you've worked with, it'd be great to hear what you're most proud of from that time in your legal career and what you look back on most fondly. I'm uh, most proud of just building that practice. You know, when I started in 97, I was a touring musician, so early 90s was on tour from 90 to about 96. And when I came out of that and started practicing, even lawyers in Toronto told me, it's like, look, this is, this is not gonna work. Like you find these artists, lawyers fly up from New York. They're really good and really hot. Lawyers fly up from New York and they steal them and take them away. And we're left with the minor leagues. I was like, well, that's, I'm not gonna do that. Like, what are these New York lawyers doing that I can't do? Like, well, they have relationships in New York and LA and they get the band signed. And I'm like, well, I'm going to do that. So I started almost immediately when I started practicing in 97, started flying to New York on a monthly basis and just started shopping Canadian bands. And over time, I represented every single rap artist in Canadian history. I want to say shout out for shout out Shop Claire, shout out the Rascals shopping them in America and really have pretty early success doing that, introducing Canadian artists to U.S. industry and international industry. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of trips, but we were able to find deals for, you know, Nelly was really the first, like, big, big one for me in, like, 2000, and then worked with a band called Three Days Grace, which is a huge rock band, some 41, half roll found a bunch of rock record deals for people I was able to like build a real real solid music practice that's kind of that that has sustained itself. I mean it's still ongoing with my partners who I sold it to. They're doing work with Kate McCrae, Alessa Alessi Cara, like really, really great law firm. So I guess that's probably what I'm most proud of and still have personal relationships with all of those artists that I mentioned, you know, I'm not sort of involved in their legal businesses anymore, but I have great personal relationships with a lot of those law firm clients that I worked with over the years. And a number of the artists you mentioned as well are Canadian artists. And I think you had said that, yeah, if they all are, all of them, hundred percent. Yeah. I never, never really, I mean, maybe from time to time, I represented a U.S. recording artist, but it's pretty rare. There, I would say 99.9% of the business were what it was, Canadian talent. Mm, that's great. And I'm sure, too, especially with some of the higher profile Canadian artists that, especially when they were rising, I'm sure you what you alluded to had happened a bunch where, for instance, let's look at Drake. You know, when he was rising up, especially with the mixtapes, I'm sure that all of the New York attorneys and everywhere else were coming in trying to sign him. What was that process like, and how were you able to not necessarily just land that, but win maybe some of the negotiations or the business over some of your competitors? My relationship with Drake is related to my history as a recording artist. But I was a recording artist. I was managed by a guy, Chris Smith, 
Chris Smith, also manager for Nelly Furtado, who ended up becoming huge artists that I worked with my entire career. Chris had a recording studio that would make available to different producers and developing artists in the community. One of those developing artists and producers was uh, 40 and Drake. So they would work out of that studio working on their demos. And when things started heating up for him, that's when they came in to see me. So, you know, when, when industry people started calling to do business with him, that's when uh, Forty and Drake came into my office. I think that was in and around 2007. He was, uh, you know, you remember, uh, you may be too young to remember this, but MySpace used to have, they used to set it up really nicely for you. It'd be like the top independent artist in Canada, and there'd be a whole list. Every Monday we'd go to it and take a look at it. Like, okay, who's hot? Who's happening? Let's listen to the music. Let's call him. And Drake was like number one on MySpace, like week after week after week. I'm like, what is this like? The grassy like guy, like what, 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 what is going on? And it was like it was probably a couple weeks after that that they just happened to like walk into my office. So they were they were unrepresented at that time. But the you know there's certainly a lot of not just for Drake but for clients generally. There's certainly a lot of uh, music attorneys out there that are happy that are that sort of hover around looking to kind of steal your clients off you like i guess that you know in addition to other things i'm proud of i was proud of the fact that i had really long-term relationships with the clients that i started with and shopped and found deals for yeah that was a flashback to the myspace music days i remember that it was quite a time and it's funny because even though it wasn't that long ago just thinking about the mechanics of it it clearly was right and just thinking what it was like in 2007 which in many ways even if it was still the tail end for myspace as i guess from the facebook social network competitor it was still big for music at that point too i mean ringtones were so big that point this was also pre-streaming in a lot of ways. I mean, SoundCloud or Spotify may have just started, but still in the early days. It was an interesting time. Yeah, no, it was. It was, it was nicely set up. You know, it was kind of the beginning. It was the beginning of the end of the art form of shopping artists as well. So if you think about that, like, so MySpace made it kind of a statistical digital kind of thing, which is definitely in vogue now. There's lawyers who specialize in this. Uh, in addition to everybody else across the industry. But before that period of time, when people would mail you a CD, I'd have 100 CDs on my desk. I'd go in on Saturday, and you'd have to listen to them. You go through, you listen to them, and it's like, oh, Nellie Furtado, I like that. Let's put that over there. I'm going to take that to New York. But, oh, your name's Grace. I'm going to take that to New York with me on my next trip. It all really started to wane in and around 2003, 2004, when I mean, I'd be going down to New York and I'd be like, hey, I got all my, I got all my CDs, I got my hot bands. <laughs> It'd be like, oh yeah, we already know about that. We already know about that's from uh, Lethbridge, Alberta, and that one from Quebec. We already know all about that. This one has this many Facebook followers. This one has this much, you know, on MySpace, like, all the data started to accumulate. So the art and the talent scouting of the process kind of really went out the window in around that period of time. I missed that part. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's really cool. And I think you may mention this in an interview that I had read recently, but I know that 
when it was time for you to sell Last Gang to um, E1 and then eventually take over the record label, I'm sure it was bittersweet in a lot of ways, right? Like, it seemed like you really enjoyed that, but here was this great opportunity to be able to run this record label and continue taking on that path. Well, it was because I, I took Last Gang with me. So, the you know, the roster and the staff and the catalog and everything moved into E1, which comes over to us at Monarch. It was really about leaving my law practice. You know, at that point, tears were shed. I love those people. They're my brothers and sons and daughters, and we built that, that firm and that practice together. So that, that was hard that day. But it really was about the opportunity at E1. And, it, you know, as much as it, uh, record, it was a recording company opportunity, it was also artist management, music publishing, music department work, a live division as well, which we were able to build at E1. So it was really, it was even more than that. It was about being able to sort of spread our wings a little bit and do more on a global scale with great resources behind us. That's great. And fast forward to today in the spot you're in now. And shifting gears a bit, one of the things that I think has been really cool that has been able to see you do not just with Monarch and with E1 is how you've managed one of the more popular assets in your that the company owns, which is the Death Row Records catalog. And this year has been a big 30th anniversary for that. And it'd be great to hear what that process has been like, because I imagine there's so much opportunity and there's also so much interest with the fans, but there's also so many important stakeholders to keep track of as well. Yeah, I often say on Death Row, I mean, Death Row is like managing a brand like Motown. It's a legendary, iconic music brand. And I have to give almost all the credit to our team. Brandon Squire, who's our head of sales and marketing, has put this on his back. He is a death row fanatic. And it shows in the work that he's done alongside with Sean Stevenson, who's the GM of our record label. Um, Those guys that handled that with so much TLC over the year. And it's been amazing to watch. So, you know, Brandon and Sean haven't really been with us all that long, but it's really kind of changed the complexion on how we've been able to treat and promote that brand over the last year with the virtual museum and NFTs that we've been doing and basketballs and pencils and our, the promotions we've done with Fatburger and the Grammy Award. It's pretty incredible. If people check out the uh, Death Row Instagram account, they'll see all the work that we've been doing over the last year. It's been pretty phenomenal and, and a lot of fun. And one of the biggest things that I think we've seen come from the catalog has been the introduction or the reintroduction, rather, of The Chronic to streaming. Comes out on April 20, 420. And I know that, of course, that's symbolic from a date perspective. But also, I feel like from a hip hop perspective, it was one of the last big releases that people were waiting to hit streaming. What was that process like getting everything set up so that that album could be distributed everywhere? It was a long discussion and a long negotiation. Obviously, there was a period of time where it wasn't everywhere. And, you know, without betraying too many confidences, as you can imagine, it was a, it was a discussion. Like, hey, we were, we're not doing this currently. How do we get to a point where we are doing it and it's mutually beneficial? And we are able to eventually get to that spot. It's been great. It's been great for everybody. 
That's good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I can only imagine the stakeholders and everything. So understood there. Yeah, we, we're, I mean, with all our artists, but in particular there, I mean, that's when you're talking about the artists and the recordings under that brand. I mean, those are some, I don't say rap recordings. Those are some of the greatest recordings of all time. So we treat those with all the respect and, and care that we can. And we, we don't do anything that any of those artists wouldn't want us to do with the recordings. We treat that very seriously. Makes sense. And I think you hit the nail on the head just in terms of even though this is a legacy catalog with artists that aren't necessarily releasing music under this record label anymore, you're still conscious of what they want and how they want to release it, which is no different in a lot of ways than the current artists that you have on your roster, or even some of the ones that you may be looking at. And that actually brings me to a a trend that I'd love to get your thoughts on because there's been so much of a push, especially in the streaming era and social media era of artist independence and being able to have artists themselves look at the trade-offs of either doing things on their own or partnering with a bigger company in order to get to where they want to. And I think there's plenty of reasons why artists have chosen to go a certain path, plenty of reasons that they may not have. And so many people want to emulate what they may see from an artist like Chance the Rapper or Russ or plenty of the other artists that have been success stories. But from your table and from your perspective as a record label executive, how do you view that landscape and how do you view the opportunities there? I guess I I view it differently than perhaps the sort of view, the common view of today. And I viewed it this way as a music attorney as well, representing artists. And again, I view it the same way as a manager of artists, right? We manage 20 to 30 recording artists. and we We do record deals with all everyone you know we've done we have artists that are signed to warner sony universal a whole bunch of different independent labels and then we do have other artists that end up putting out recordings themselves i would say you know especially for developing artists there's a thousand things you can do there's no way you're doing all of them a well-resourced international music company partner that can help you with sync licensing, touring opportunities, corralling creative talent, locking down producers, getting the right mixers, providing you with capital and resources when you need it, locking in that great videographer. I mean, it's clear, maybe it's not a thousand things, but it's a lot. And I think, I guess you're talking to a guy who I went to law school before I decided to be a professional recording artist. So I was all about the hedge. It's like, if you're a developing artist, why don't you want to stack the deck and compete with the best? Record deals aren't forever. Lawyers are all over the place. Nobody's signing record deals without lawyers these days. That just doesn't, not with major record labels anyway. And the deals, the deals are great. They're not forever. And there's, there's real opportunity. I would rather be a developing artist that makes it and gets through the window and becomes Garth Brooks or Pearl Jam or, or Drake and establishes themselves and establishes their brand or Taylor Swift. Establish your brand and then move on. Do the next deal and the next deal after that. 
do a lot more of this, the stuff by yourself. All of those artists I mentioned, except for maybe Garth Brooks, you know, are associated somehow, some way with major labels who help them with some of the stuff, even though they're fully developed and recognized brands. And I think there's a reason for that. I mean, I'm obviously biased to a degree. We do have a record company. We're trying to convince artists of that, uh, that argument every day. But you mentioned Chance the Rapper and I mean, it would just seem to me like there would be a lot more Chance the Rappers. Shouldn't there be 500 Chance the Rappers at this point? I think Chance is awesome, but I feel like that's a bit more of an anomaly. And we read about the success stories and semi-success stories, but you, we don't read about, nobody's writing stories about the 32-year-old musician who's calling me to try to get a deal because it didn't work out. It's the ones that have worked or have almost worked. And I do believe, I don't know if you've read Everybody Lied. It's a book by Seth Stevens, uh, David Owitz. I think the stats, if you analyze them, show that there aren't that many artists making enough money to hire a good team, lawyer, manager, businessmen, business managers, accountants, buy a house, pay taxes, live comfortably, let alone being able to set themselves up for life. And for me, I mean, I just think I would want to build a team around me that can help me do those thousand things so I get out there and establish myself and establish my brand as opposed to worrying about keeping all the money, keeping all the control, owning the masters forever. That, to me, kind of feels secondary. If you don't make it, none of that stuff matters. I could imagine that being able to share that perspective with artists can likely get tougher over time. But I'm curious how it's been maybe the past few years, because if we look at, let's say, maybe 2015 to 2017 is maybe the peak time where artists like a Chance the Rapper or even someone like Russ were getting so much press for what they were able to do. And I think we saw so much discussions about ownership since then. But what has it been like, let's say, in the past 24 months when talking to artists? Do you feel like things have changed in terms of what artists may want and what you may be offering artists as well? I feel like we're going through a period of transition now where, you know, we have had that period. I think there's a lot of label service companies, like low margin companies that are signing everything under the sun and providing a platform and a distribution platform for independent artists. And we're getting more and more artists that are going in and out of those deals and coming back to us, sort of realizing having something that's a little bit more high touch is maybe better than those other models. And it's not necessarily for everybody. Sometimes you have superstar managers who can do a lot of this stuff for you and kind of organize it and get it going and do it right. I just think that's, that's more in the minority than, than in the majority from what I see. But it's still tough. The deals for artists are, I mean, they're way better than they were in the Nasser winter. If you lived in the Nasser winter and you saw a record deal during that period, those were tough. Those were tough deals for artists. I think an artist who's been able to build some audience for themselves independently, who walks into Universal, Sony, or Warner, or Monarch with armed with their attorney and is ready to negotiate, they can do a pretty good deal for themselves, which isn't forever and isn't abusive and can be mutually beneficial. 
Yeah, it's been impressive, even if I look at an artist like Olivia Rodrigo, how she was able to sign a licensing deal where she's going to own her masters in the long term. That's just not something that you normally would have seen for someone at her stage in her career to be able to do with the type of major record label that she was able to do it. So times are definitely changing, especially when you look at that or you look at an artist like Taylor Swift now, you know, as you alluded to now. With her second deal, she was able to sign something that is much more advantageous for her. And I think some of the other artists on the Universal Music Group and some of the others have likely renegotiated things as it's continued on. So it'll be interesting. I I don't see that changing anytime soon, but it clearly feels like there has been at least a shift towards artists using the leverage, whether they've been in the game for a while or in Olivia's case, if they're, even if they're just starting out, but they have the potential. I think where record labels have gotten themselves into trouble more than anywhere, you know, as opposed to owning masters for life of copyright or anything like that, is that they, they just find too many things and too many things get ignored and don't get the TLC and they don't get the thousand things done for them because there's just too much stuff in the pipeline to get any sort of focus. And I think that's where you see or hear some of the resentment in the artist community or management community. It's like going into some of those companies that you can get shelled. It happens all the time. You're not even getting any help. That's the worst case scenario. Not signing a deal that's tough, in my view. Get what you can out of the label, get them to work with you and help get you to the next level. You saying that reminds me of something I saw a friend of mine post. He said that he saw that there were major record labels that had found out about a artist releasing music because they had seen what the artist had put out on social media, as opposed to the artist himself having the conversation with the record label without it, which I guess is an indication of the relationship there, which I think speaks to your point of not wanting to be shelved or not feeling like you're not getting the you know, correct level of support. That's the worst. I mean, being in purgatory and not being able to do stuff in your prime, as you look at me, you've got a period of time from the age of 20 to 30. I've read all the music industry biographies about, about artists that have been successful. It's like there aren't a lot of artists that are happening at the age of 32. So you've got a window of time where I feel like you've got to, you've got to stack the deck make it work for you, get through, build a career, build a brand. And not to say don't, don't sweat the details, sign anything that's put in front of you, but be focused on that, making incredible music and building your brand and building your story and your audience and your, your relationship with your fans. Being focused on owning your masters or having the greatest royalty rate in the world. To me, I mean, for artists I manage, it's like, ah, that's good. It's awesome. How about making the most incredible music in the world and going toe-to-toe with the best? That's what gets me excited. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this conversation continues to develop, I think, over the next decade or so. It's definitely been very thought-provoking, I think, has at least raised some important questions for the past 10 years or so. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it evolves, especially as we see how some of these platforms and things shake out. But Chris, this is great. You shared a bunch of insights, and it was really great to hear a lot more about your career and everything leading up to this point. But before we let you go, is there anything else that you want to plug from Monarch or to let the Trapper audience know about? 
We've got some big records coming next year. We've got a Lumineers album that's coming that we're really excited about. We've got a bunch of projects we've been working with the RZA on. Next year, we'll have some music out with him, some collaborative projects. Live touring, fingers crossed, comes back next year. We've got great tours booked with management clients, Lights, Arkells, Palfu, the entire roster. I mean, all these artists are like ready to get out and get back out on the road. So I'm looking forward to that more than anything, seeing live, live music again and seeing bands and artists out there doing what they love to do. That's great. Yeah. Same here. I went to a few live shows towards the end of this year, and I am hoping to do a lot more this coming year. Stick in the house way too long. I'd like to, I hope we get to go together at some point. I know. I know. I got to get back down to LA soon. I'll definitely hit you up. Keep you posted if you're up here. I look forward to seeing you. Yeah. All right. Well, Chris, thanks again. This was great. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapolo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.